Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live to air performances, documentaries, and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R. Speaking of William Shakespeare, there's been a, an interesting discussion happening, a, uh, a provocation by uh, the playwright Lachlan Philpot, who suggested we should ban Shakespeare from the stage for five years in order to foster new plays. Playwright Hanny Rayson joins me in the studio now. Hanny, how do you feel about Shakespeare? <laughs> That's a good start. Um, well, I feel ambivalent about Shakespeare. I, um, I'm like the sort of plebs in some way who have to read the play before I see it, so I make sure that I kind of get what the story is. Um, but um, I'm not so... I, I mean, I'm, I'm keen to see it. I'm keen to educate myself, put it that way. So I am a playwright of impeccably untutored credentials. <laughs> <laughs> You're also a screenwriter. You've been... Um, uh, you've won kind of uh, literary awards in both New South Wales and Victoria, Writers Guild Awards, Helpman Awards. You were nominated for the Miles Franklin Literary Award for Life After George, mm. I believe the first playwright to be so nominated. And you've mm. also more recently... It was published last Last year, written a memoir. Why did you decide to write a memoir? Well, for my whole life, I have been inhabiting other people. That's actually my job description. You know, I'm a person who lies on the floor and imagines that I am someone completely different, someone totally other than me. Not just a bit like me, you know, with a different name, but someone like... <laughs> not at all like me. So I guess there came a time when I thought, like, it is actually time, Annie, to step into yourself, that you are a person who's actually had quite a lot of adventures. And um, so that's why I did it. And it's been really wonderful. Firstly, it was wonderful writing it, but then it was wonderful doing the book tour because I did 50 pit stops all over Australia. I started in Perth and then worked my way around to um, far north Queensland so, um, you know, doing readings and, and talking about the book. And then people said to me, look, you should do a show. And as it happened, I trained as an actress, um, you know, like before the Boer War, I have to tell you. <laughs> but um, I did have actor training. And um, so now I have shaped my uh, book, in, not all of it, but just a bit of it, into a performance script. And I have been working at Malthouse with Matt Lutton, the artistic director there, and we now have a show. So uh, I'm curious to know that the, I mean, Hello Beautiful is the name of the memoir and the name of the show that you're doing at the Malthouse from the 11th to the 15th of May. Why did you decide you needed a director for this? As a, because given that you've done all those pit stops on the, on the book tour, you must be by now very adept at dipping in and out of the book, sharing an anecdote, reading a piece, talking about it, reflecting on it. Why have a director? Well, because it's not like that. That's what the book tour was. This is actually a performance piece. So um, it, it is, I don't talk as in, I mean, I talk for 50 minutes, let me tell you. <laughs> I talk for an hour. But you've essentially then turned your memoir into a play script. I have. Yes, but the conceit is that I am a writer, so there's a little baby typewriter on the on the table, and I do have pieces of paper around me, which is in part necessary because there are moments when, even though you you know, I, there are 42 pages of writing which I have to learn, and I have learnt them, and I know them in my own house, and then when I stand up. <laughs> 
there is a kind of moment where like a sensor has gone and done a, like a black line through a, a line. So um, I do have pieces of paper around the desk and everything as prompts, but also because partly I am performing myself as the writer. So that's the conceit of the show. I do have photographs. Um, there's music stings for every um for every little scene that I've written, there's a music sting and they mark the, the ages as we go through, sort of um, starting in the, in the 60s, starts in 1962. Now, let's uh, talk about, I guess, some of the, the issues and, and ideas and stories that you explore in the memoir. Um, and before we go into some of those scenes and details and moments, I wanted to ask you about the process of self-censorship, which any writer writing autobiographically uh, uh, will have to encounter at some point. You have to think, can I talk about this event? Because it doesn't just involve you, it involves other people. Talk to us about how you policed those lines within your own life and where they are overlap with the lives of other people. Well, that's a big issue when you're doing memoir, as you quite rightly point out. You know, you you are you own your own story, but um, to what extent can you sort of, um, you know, poach other people's as well? Well, my sort of general rule of thumb about that is that I pretty much tell everyone what I'm doing. I'm even doing that when I'm copying down fabulous things that people have said if I'm, you know, at dinner or something at someone's place and excuse myself to go to the toilet and then write down this most fantastic anecdote that they've just said at dinner and I would love to use that because it fits perfectly. Um, I usually tell people um, that just seems to me to be fairly um, straight up and down and fair, ethical. Um, but of course, um, you know, your family's involved and you can't rename them. Sometimes, I, you know, when I rang people and said, and writers were the worst, I have to tell you. They were the people who, who always said to me, I didn't say that. I said, well, you did say that. <laughs> I've got that in my book. But it doesn't matter if people, I'd say, well, what would you rather say? Or I just call them someone different, really. Um, so it's truthful, but maybe not according to, you know, someone called Dorothy, you know. <laughs> I've, um, changed the name. But, and I've done that in the, in the play as well. But, you know, you can't change the name of your mother. And you can't change the name of your father. And my father died when I was young. And, you know, the fact that um, he's dead still doesn't make me feel um, any lack of... Um, or any, any less betrayal, I suppose, if you if you want to be more dramatic with the words. Um, so it is, it's a process of negotiation. I talk it through with people. Yeah. And obviously you talk it through with yourself as well, yeah. uh, reflecting on... When the process of writing, whether it was writing the original manuscript for the memoir or, or adapting it for the stage, as you've done for this kind of autobiographical show, there's there's a lot of incident in the book. Whether it's class consciousness as a child uh, and and the awareness that um, people think uh, that the area in which you grew, uh, grew up as a kid is posh, when <laughs> kind of like your experience is anything was anything but. Uh, yeah. There's also the I grew up in Brighton, and Brighton, Brighton. Yeah, a lot of people who live Bayside now. But when I was a child, it was completely different. You know, so, um, yeah, there's been a big change down there. Yeah. Um, you've written uh, also about a miscarriage, which is a very personal thing for, for any woman to talk about and write about, particularly in a public arena. Um, you've written about uh, a body underneath your mum's house. All kinds of kind of dramatic and... and I, would, I was about to say fantastical stories, but they're not fantastical because they're true. How much embellishment has there been in them, though? Well, n- there's not been embellishment, actually, with with um, certainly not the body under the house one. That was an extraordinary thing to happen to anybody. Um, but um, 
following on just also about the about your responsibility to other people, I'm always weighing up to like what you know the the hierarchy of responsibilities that I I feel like I don't do I care more about the art in this instant or about my friendship? That would be a question that would be, you know, sitting with me, you know, sort of all the time. Embellishing, um, there is a turn of phrase that is a writer's turn of phrase, a writer's way of seeing things, which my family is always rolling their eyebrows and oh, they're, yeah, rolling their eyes and uh, saying, you know, yes, well, of course, that's Annie would say that. That's, that. that's the way she would see it. So people have got used to a kind of way of making things more quirky maybe than, than they... Uh, appear to others um, but um, no the, the facts are there because I, I wondered if particularly for adap- adapting the memoir for this uh, performance at the Malthouse whether you the, the dramaturg in you wanted to go oh that's just not as dramatically satisfying a story as mm. it would be if I could restructure it in some way and, and just embellish or highlight or add a little bit more shade and, and colour mm. oh that's absolutely the truth boy, is that the truth, you know, that you just, that you build to a moment, you build to a moment, and then actually the person doesn't show up, you know, and then you just, you know, if you're, when you're a dramatist, you just, of course the person shows up, or, you know, the um, accident happens and the man dies, or <laughs> whatever, you know, you're always looking for the, the way to actually um, resolve the tensions that you've set up. So, yes, sometimes that can be quite sort of disappointing, but you just, I think people... There's a contract between you and the reader, you and the audience in this instance. I mean, part of the reason I want to do this play is that I'm so excited about pioneering for myself a new form of being in the theatre. Um, you know, I'll have to see how it goes because I don't want to make claims beyond... It hasn't opened yet. But just the sort of pleasure of the intimacy of the inter- interaction between you and an audience. You know, there's nobody else there. There's nothing, there's no actors. It's just me. And I am there telling people directly. So it's, um, yeah, it's a kind of memoir theatre in a sense. It doesn't always have to be memoir because I also work as a journalist. I have a column in The Age and that column, the brief for that is Plucky Girl Goes on an Adventure. And so I go on an adventure somewhere and report back. So that's the kind of material that can go neatly into the theatre. And, you know, the voices are all great. You know, out little recently I was at the um, tractor pool in Quambatook. You know, so it's a whole raft of fantastic voices that sit very nicely with voices of people where, you know, when I worked in Hollywood, you know, so that the, 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 the sense of a life that is rich and, um, you know, sort of verbally dexterous is, um, and for someone who's a playwright who's got an ear, um, you know, that's what feels thrilling to me. You know, and small spaces and just me talking to an audience, lovely. In terms of presenting the work, as you said, you've got uh, acting uh, training in your past and Matt Lutton, the artistic director of the Malthouse, is directing the work. Mm-hmm. So... To what degree, then, are you making this theatrical? We've already acknowledged the the set dressing, paper and typewriter and so Mm. forth. But what about doing accents? What about trying to embody a character on stage? Are you attempting to actually act out these stories or are you just telling them with a little bit of dramatic inflection? Um, I'm telling... They vary. Some of them I'm acting out and I'm doing the voices and um, I'm really loved all that stuff um and some of them I'm, I'm telling so there's a sort of a mixture and some of them are being aided by 
some photographs. Um, the choreography is very simple. You know, I'm um, when I had to um, there was a, there was a st- one story about my father who was a very impetuous person, and one Sunday afternoon he decided to convert our living and dining room into one room, and this ended up soaring up off the supporting studs um, across the dining room. So at one point in the afternoon, he and my brother, who was at that stage 12, were holding up our house with their arms, right? So I was trying to do and demonstrate everything by the soaring and the hacking and the chiseling and all the language that went through went with that with a 1950s dad you know you know shoot a flame and brick and all that sort of stuff the way my dad used to talk so but doing the actions and the actual talking you just look daggy <laughs> probably blind freddie could have told me that but you know i worked so hard to get all that soaring and chiseling and everything right and matt Lutton, who's just divine just sat opposite me i don't think so Annie. <laughs> Annie Rayson's Hello Beautiful, uh, presenting some of the selected stories from her memoir of the same name, is happening at the Malthouse Theatre, Sturt Street, South Bank, from the 11th until the 15th of May, Wednesdays to Saturday at 8pm, Sundays at 5.30pm. Tickets range from $25 to $40, and you can book at malthousetheatre.com.au. And if you want to get your hands on a copy of the memoir, Hello Beautiful, Scenes from a Life, published by Text Publishing, uh, and you can pick it up in bookstores for $29.99. I highly recommend it. Annie Rayson, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you, Richard. Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live-to-air performances, documentaries and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R. My next guest joins me in the studio. Nick Clark is the CEO of the National Theatre, which has been sitting on the corner of Carlisle Street and Barclay Street in St Kilda since, I believe, 1920, when it was originally known as the Victory Theatre. That is correct, Richard. Well done on your research uh, there. Yeah. been doing my homework. <laughs> yeah. So uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no worries. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so we're almost 100 years old, the, the, we're sort of five years away from that. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, and the theatre is uh, needing some work. You know, as you get to that sort of age, 100 years, you know, the seats and the uh, the, the walls and the roof, everything uh, requires a little bit of extra tender love and care. Um, but I suppose, you know, one of the things that, because uh, I've been there for about 18 months and uh, I was given this gift to come in because uh, I'm actually a producer. My background is being a producer. I've worked with, you know, companies like Ranters and uh, with Perth Theatre Company uh, and with Theatre Works in the past as well. And But I was given this gift uh, in December sort of 2014 of coming in to uh, run the National Theatre, uh, which, you know, you, as you get in and a few months into it, you start to see all the things that are required had for um, a space, had a really strong um, hire uh, usage, you know, venue for hire for a lot of dance schools and schools and uh, companies like Clock. I suppose it's because of the capacity. It's a big theatre, 783 seats. Uh, which works really perfectly for that school. All those schools wanting to get, you know, one big end-of-year extravaganza, get it up and happening. Uh, but I suppose with that, um, the venue was really sitting back waiting for those calls to come and having a great resource of such a space sitting there. I thought, well, from my art 
justice producing background, we've got to start to shake these things up a bit. We've got to start to... To become more proactive. Well, proactive, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and, you know, we've gone out this year, we launched a season for 2016... And a lot of it is we've actually put a stakeholder in a lot of productions. I've gone out and used some networks and connections and seen a lot of work the previous year and said, right, well, you know, for example, um, In the Heights was a chapel off chapel. This could go to the bigger space. Come in here. We'll work together on an arrangement because then the Nationals got a stakeholder uh, in trying to ensure that it's a success. Uh, we did that for The Life of Bon Scott as well. We're doing it for another piece, Mark Lang coming in uh, to do a live recording of his... Uh, new solo album in in June. Uh, It's about us sort of getting more of a stakeholder connection with artists because then I think the community's got to respond more to that. Us as an organisation are more engaged with that. Uh, That was, I suppose, one of the initiatives we wanted to do. Another one is what we've just done uh, for the comedy festival is shake up the venue a bit. You know, everyone thought, oh, it's a big national theatre, 783 seats. Um, But what we did during the comedy festival was really interesting. We closed down the stage to a black box and had uh, a 70-seater in there and rotated two or three shows through that. We've opened up our mezzanine level into a nice little cabaret space. We also had some shows that were promenading throughout the whole theatre. So using all the different spaces, nooks and crannies that we've got. We're 100 years old. There's lots of you know little doors and things that have been renovated over time. Quite a few nooks and crannies. Yeah. And so you're doing that again for the Fringe Festival later in the year, I believe. Absolutely. Well. Yeah, yeah. And we've got still running expressions of interest now for people who are um, wanting to be a part of that season. We've probably got about five different slots running over the you know three weeks of the, uh, the Fringe Festival, so expressions of interest are open until I think it's next Wednesday. So right. if people want to look at contact us via the website nationaltheatre.org.au. Um, they can sort they of get an expression so, in. Yeah. Yeah. And which would be a really valuable hub then on the, the south side because Absolutely. Gasworks obviously functions as a really successful hub for Fringe yep. and it's developed a bit of a, a circus focus. Absolutely. What would you see the national developing in terms... Would it be... Would you program thematically by art form, try to present a diversity of work for Fringe? Well, I think we're pretty open at the moment, I suppose, because it's a new initiative for us. I mean, we really want to be driven from where what the artists are looking at. Um, you know, we, obviously with the comedy festival recently we had you know some people trying to do you know doing some stand-up we also had you know uh, i suppose comic plays in there uh but we've got the um upstairs area which is really just but it's probably more a cabaret focused play so we're open to anything puppetry um work during the day for, for young people um during the fringe as well so uh, i suppose we're at this sort of open stage where we're not really pushing anyone we want to see this we want to see big dramatic work coming through um we're open and we'll program accordingly based on the interest and drive. I, and you're right about with Gasworks, I suppose with the combination of us now, Theatre Works, Gasworks, we really want to build up that south side as a real sort of uh, choice venue for artists, the more the merrier, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as we mentioned at the start of the conversation, the National Theatre was originally known as the Victory Theatre. It changed its name in 1970 yes. to the National Theatre. Yeah. Is, yep. is that title, the National Theatre, sometimes a hindrance as well as a helper because it would imply that this is a national theatre company, for example, that you you should be touring and it certainly reflects a, uh, a period in which... Uh, Australia had really, I guess, cast off colonial shackles and Australian the Australian voice was making itself heard very much in theatre and, and in the arts more generally. Yeah. Talk to us about the perceptions people have of the National Theatre. Yeah, well, look, it's it's really interesting. I get a whole different... a uh, lot of res- different responses. 
I suppose one of the main things is that uh, we, because we've got the drama school and the ballet school and the venue, which is we're all part of the one organisation. There's a lot of people who've come to me, go, oh yeah, I went there when I was a you know kid. Yeah, everyone is coming out of the out of the woodwork now and saying they've had a connection, which is really lovely. And now I'm going, well, that's a great challenge for us. I'd really love to you know get that connection out in the community that's been and had you know whether it's a drama class they've done there or a dance class, or all gone through the full-time training program professional training programs I've got to really start to embrace this is where I this is where I've started come back in support by you know even coming to all shows uh, but you know or, you know coming in and and supporting and seeing where the, all the schools and the programs have developed because that's where the original name actually came from is actually from the the training schools that were established in the 1930s um, under that banner of the national um, theater so they had originally it was the uh, dance as uh, in the classical ballet the opera and uh, the drama course. So they've actually, I suppose, the thing that's been driving it through and hence that sort of motivated the change of name from the victory to the national to keep sort of that banner running. I mean, as you'll see, you know, you've got the program there in front, but no, on Radio Cassette, we've got a new season brochure. We've actually shifted it also to have the National Theatre Melbourne there. And that, I suppose, is kind of trying to reflect that we are broader than just St Kilda. Yes, we're tapping into that lovely energy that St Kilda has with you know music, you know rock and roll, um, I suppose music theatre as well, um, and really trying to appeal I suppose broader uh, to the the I suppose to the whole whole of Melbourne to attract you know audiences, performers, everyone to contribute. Uh, also because we've got the schools as well, and we we are a registered training organisation. We do rely on the, those national and international students um, coming in uh, to do the courses uh, to supply you know, some of the revenue streams that we've got. So in terms of that, it's a broader, uh, I suppose, perspective for our marketing to appeal nationally and internationally. So when students see that, they connect us in with Melbourne. They might not necessarily know St Kilda as that first step, but they know Melbourne. Um, But we know that we're very much in the heart of St Kilda, uh, uh, Carlisle and Barclay, and, yeah, it's always going to be there as well. So so that's some of the little connections that we've got. But everyone's got a bit of a, a passion for... For the, for the national or the Nash, as people call it, uh, uh, you know, just the other day, one of the, the actually the, the CEO at TheatreWorks, uh, um, uh, John Sheedy, he's a graduate from the National as well, and taking him through a, a little tour, he was he was going, oh, I used to, to go there, I used to meet these people out the front for my coffee before going into class. So yeah, all the little stories come out. So I'm open. I love to for people to pop in. I mean, I'm open to taking people on tours because uh, a lot of people love to just go and experience like that fabulous bow art that we've got in there. The style is, you know, really quite unique uh, and uh, hear the stories of people's connections to the Nash from days gone past. And as you say, it's the the venue's uh, centenary coming up in 2020. Yes. So knowing those stories would be really valuable for then planning uh, centenary programs as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. Ah, that's, yeah, I've got a sort of some motivation behind it. Yeah, we really want to try to tap into those connections um, to start to build towards you know, hopefully what will be quite a significant event when the, the theatre turns 100 years old. Uh, you know, it would be great to be able to have some combination of, I suppose, both um, community-based uh, stories, performances, and obviously hoping to have, you know, performances from the drama school and the ballet school as well. We've got some there to celebrate this year because it's 80 years of the actual school. So in the in the middle of the year, we've got, we've got a program with the, with the ballet and the drama school going actually onto the main stage this year. 
year with the man who came to dinner. So it's really sort of upping the focus on the schools this year in the 80th, then to build towards the 100-year celebration of the theatre. Yeah. If you want to know more about the National Theatre, you can uh, jump online, www.nationaltheatre.org.au, or you can pick up a copy of the season 2016 brochure, which which will tell you about everything that's coming up, including uh, a production of Capellia in December. We've got... uh, a, 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 a show called Ghost Stories in July, which sounds... Anything that has a disclaimer, um, that we strongly advise those of a nervous disposition and pregnant women to carefully consider their decision to attend. That intrigues me. Um, uh, all that and more. So uh, check out the, the season brochure online or pick up a copy at, at all those usual places, bookshops and... Cafes. Uh, cafes and, and, and the like. If yeah. you want to know more about what's happening at the National Theatre Melbourne, 20 Carlisle Street in St Kilda, on the corner of Barclay Street. It's right in the heart of St Kilda. We've been talking to Nick Clark. It's CEO. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Richard. Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live to air performances, documentaries, and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R. Talking visual art now, and joined in the studio by Judy Watson, who uh, joins us to, to talk about her work, The Scarifier, at Tarawara Museum of Art. Judy, welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Now, this is a work which is, uh, I guess, responding to the indigenous history of the area, uh, and in particular, the, the Corrindurk Aboriginal mission that was out there, which I first heard about through a, a wonderful La Mama play. Um, which was a, a piece of verbatim theatre, uh, Corrindurk, We Will Show the Country. Mm. Um, what was it about the history of Corrindurk itself uh, and the, the wider area around Hillsville that spoke to you as an Indigenous artist and made you want to kind of create this artwork? Well, I, I think the fact that I am a, uh, an Aboriginal woman, a uh, one-year woman from northwest Queensland, and when I travel the country, this is like another country to me coming down here, being invited in and to work with co- the community, in this case, uh, Brooke Wandon-Collins, who's a uh, descendant of um, w- uh, William Burrock. It's really important to have a look at the country, respond to the country, and to me, I felt that the country around the Yarra Ranges area near Tarawara and Hillsville and the site of, you know, Corrindurk itself, it's enfolded by beautiful mountains, very significant mountains, which seem to have a very sacred presence. And so I was asking for which mountains were significant uh, for Brooklyn for other people there. And so Mount Riddell, um, Mount Borbor as well, because that's the edge of um, their country connection, which before it intersects with Gunai country. And just the history of Corrindurk being a very, very successful uh, station where Aboriginal people were removed to, but then enforced uh, and moved out from because it was so successful in hop production. And basically that came from greedy landowners who saw the success of the station, uh, the beautiful place itself, and wanted that country for themselves. The history of Corrindurk is a a tragic but fascinating one as well because as the the fact that uh 
it was uh, Aboriginal peoples from many different tribes forced together on, on country there, uh, and for most of them it was not their country. That's and right. yet they forged a, a successful community, a rich and strong community. Uh, they became self-sufficient, exactly. um, which is uh, it, it's a remarkable story of, of uh, Indigenous enterprise in the face of colonial uh, uh, ignorance and, as you say, then greed as well from people who went, well, clearly that land's prosperous, we'll take it over. And then, of course, they could not be as uh, s- uh, kind of successful with the land as the, the Indigenous landholders were. So You've now it. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's exactly what the title of Scarifier is. It's um, a tool, uh, agricultural tool, which follows the plough. And I love that analogy of following the plough and, in a way, the contour lines taken from Google Maps, which I use to create the, the mountain uh, images, which are, you know, paintings on canvas from, are doing that delineation of line and ridges. But also harking back to people like Bruce Pascoe, who's written that fantastic book, you know, Dark Emu, Black Seeds, talking about Indigenous agricultural practices in Australia, which really haven't been recognised. And people like Bill Gamage's book, you know, The Largest Estate, etc., all of that is starting to come to the fore as researchers and historians and Aboriginal people are saying, well, hang on, what about what we have in the country which has been whitewashed or sort of, you know, not looked at clearly? Um, you know, it, Aboriginal people were planting yams long before um, or, you know, Murnong Daisy, etc. in this area. You know, they had sort of um, agricultural practices and water retention practices in place and this needs to be recognised as specifically um, a really important uh, form of Indigenous technology alongside other agricultural practices, you know, that came in from Europe. Yeah. I mean, it's... uh, I know in uh, the Western District at the moment, for example, there are uh, uh, attempts underway to get kind of, uh, I think, UNESCO uh, World Heritage status Mm -hmm. for uh, uh, Aboriginal uh, eel traps, for example. Uh, And given that I think just recently there was a discovery uh, uh, that that pushed back the date of Aboriginal occupation of the land to 58,000 years, uh, mm. so longer than, than previously documented, at least scientifically. And, uh, um, it, it's, I, I guess, it, I guess uh, from my perspective as a white fellow, that it's perhaps good to have scientific validation of oral histories and traditions that we know go back at, to 60,000 years perhaps. But um, in terms of the, the exhibition, The Scarifier, as well as these topographical kind of images you've created, you've also created an installation using kind of other objects and, and works as well. So tell us about the broader picture of the exhibition. Okay, yeah, I was looking at the history of sort of um, the hop plantations and there's some images of saplings which are sort of placed in position as hop trainers and there's some amazing um, photographs by Fred Kruger which in the Museum of Victoria collection of Aboriginal people including William Barak and other significant elders from the community and it's just the most beautiful image of these saplings in posi- being put into position and uh, Aboriginal people on the station, and it was called a station in those days, a working station, you know, with the hop production. And so I worked with the fantastic team out at Tarawara um, positioning these saplings, which, in fact, my brother-in-law had bought in from, you know, his property good on him and you know Andrew and Deidre thank you for that harvesting the saplings and bringing them in and 
placing them in position so they become like a drawing in space. You've got this beautiful wall in the North Gallery at Tarawara and I wanted the drawings to be like elements, drawn elements with the light coming through from behind. So that was really important for me to place that. Um, Edie Curzer, who's a friend of mine, she's a costume designer, uh, along with her friend Tracy Richardson, made these beautiful clothes out of calico to signify the sorts of clothing that uh, Aboriginal people were wearing, but also the lack of materials that they had to keep warm. And so significant numbers of them died from chest infections um, brought on by inadequate clothing and problematic housing that they were sort of in, you know, they didn't keep out the windshields. And obviously once possum skin cloaks were sort of exchanged for European clothes, suddenly as soon as, you know, your clothing gets wet and, you know, it's not wicking off the water in the same way. So all of those technologies that are brought in to look after people actually were the detriment for many people who then lost their lives. I mean, tragically, um, William Barrack's own son, David, you know, he walked with him. I think this is the most heart-rending story. You know, from from Corrandirk to the hospital. He walked all that way carrying him, brought him into the hospital, and then David was taken off him. William Barrack was not even allowed into the hospital, um, and David was crying out for him, his son, and then he died there. And, you know, there was William sort of out destitute, you know, just feeling the loss of his child and all of this is sort of covered in the minutes of evidence which is something that anybody can look at and find online it's a significant it's a really interesting document to read I actually read it almost from what cover to cover in terms of pages and it covers the parliamentary inquiry into um Corin Dirk how it was going to be closed down and has interviews with people both indigenous and non-indigenous in the place and it's it's an amazing historical narrative of the time and of the way that people were what they felt and how they you know were sort of speaking and talking about each other yeah that kind of record of inquiry uh was the basis for the play that i mentioned earlier mm. corinne we will show the country which has been published as a script i know so mm. people can can access that as well uh, uh so it's uh, a beautiful piece of verbatim theatre that brings to life a, a really significant part of Indigenous history here, kind of in and around Melbourne. And yeah, for anybody who's driving out to Tarawara, uh, Judy, to see your work, I think for them to know that William Barrack walked from uh, uh, from that region into the city and back on a couple of occasions to address Parliament, to deliver That's kind right. of letters and so forth, to to think about that physical journey as you drive out through the Arrow Ranges, just will in I, I'm sure enrich people's awareness and consideration mm. of uh, of your work, the Scarifier, which is being presented as part of a wider exhibition panorama at Tarawara Museum of Art, which is an exploration of landscape in art. So uh, your work being presented alongside other artists there. But let's quickly also talk about the fact that you're a busy woman and a busy artist. You're also, uh, you've got work on in another Melbourne exhibition at the moment as well. That's right. So that's um, out at uh, Monash University Art Museum and it's an exhibition called Barriers, uh, sorry, Borders, Barriers and Walls, which is curated by uh, Francis Parker. It's a fantastic exhibition. I saw it yesterday for the first time and there's so many video pieces that are really compelling, great installations. My work in that show is called From Dusk Till Dawn, Five Brisbane Shields 
and it's talking about the exclusion zone which was set up in Brisbane and that's not exclusive just to Brisbane. It happened in many country towns and cities around Australia uh, which was a one square mile radius in which Aboriginal people were not allowed within those confines between the hours of sunrise, uh, sorry, sunset and sunrise as in from uh, dusk till dawn and the troopers would ride around with stock whips chasing people out of those barriers and in the case of Brisbane Tom Petrie who was one of the early colonising families um, he in fact he had a a pretty good relationship with Aboriginal people up there and so we learn a lot of uh, early Brisbane history from his uh, reminiscences through his daughter or niece but he actually had the job to construct um, the, the markers, the boundary markers, which he made out of ironbark, and they're classic sort of statutory sort of forms, and I actually had made them previously, you know, as reminders of those, those times. If you'd like more information about the exhibition Borders, Barriers, Walls on at uh, Monash University Museum of Art that's on until the 2nd of July uh, and you can jump online www.monash.edu.au forward slash M-U-M-A and the other exhibition that we're talking about uh, Judy Watson's work The Scarifier uh, on until the 31st of July at Tarawara Museum of Art out uh, near Hillsville. Uh, It's on uh, Hillsville, Yarra Glen Road and uh, you can jump online also and check out the website there for the gallery, uh, which I should have in front of me and I can't find. Ah, oh, there, I knew I'd written it down somewhere. www.twma.com.au uh, And I believe you're doing uh, uh, a forum this uh, Saturday, the 7th of May. That's right. I, along with some other artists, so just off the top of my head, it's Danny Mellor, Eamon Stillers, and uh, there's a writer. Justin uh, Clemens. Thank you. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it should be really interesting because, once again, the Panorama Show is a beautiful show. It's a lovely drive out to Tarawara. Uh, and once again, you know, that country around there is magnificent. It is. It's, and it's physically beautiful. It's rich in history. Uh, and you can also get an excellent glass of wine while you're out at Tarawara as well. So, uh, uh, so uh, do, as I said, the, the website, uh, t, uh, au for the Tarawara Museum of Art, where you can see Judy Watson's work. Judy, thank you so much for joining us here at Thank Triple you R. very much. Triple R. For complete access to the Triple R archives, which include over 100 interviews, live-to-air performances, documentaries and other Triple R specials, become a subscriber via the link on our website. Thanks for listening to Triple R.